I'm Christian Cison. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm, and I'm the practice director of all self-insured and large deductible risk. So what we're going to discuss today is paying temporary disability in general. We're going to talk about when to begin making those payments and how much to pay. We're going to talk about when you can stop paying a temporary disability indemnity. That's what we all want to do. Uh, so hopefully you can stick with me before we get to that slide. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about labor market attachment and how we can use that to defend against indemnity claims. Along the way, we're going to provide defenses and practical advice to each moment throughout a claim. Uh, indemnity may be just one major part of a larger workers' compensation claim, and so along the way, we need to prepare those defenses to set ourselves up. Now, of course, this is a live presentation, so anybody who's uh, been through this before, there should be a question box that you can submit questions throughout the entire presentation, and at the end, if we have some time, we'll go through the questions and answer them live. So the waiting period and payer compliance. Well, the waiting period has to do with the amount of time before we have to pay any benefits for lost time. And it's a seven-day waiting period in New York, which means that if a claimant employee is out for less than seven days, he doesn't have to be paid for his time out. If that lost time extends until the 15th day, then you would be required to remit payment for all prior periods of lost time. The 1810 rule does apply for payer compliance, however. So the 18 has to do with the timeline after the disability event. Now, this could be the accident itself, or it could be when the claimant starts losing time. The 10 part of the 1810 rule has to do within uh, the amount of time that an employer has knowledge of the lost time. And this rule complies, uh, or this rule allows us to comply with payer compliance based on whichever timeline is longer. So 18 days after the event or 10 days after we have knowledge of the event, we have to start making payments for indemnity. And this, this occurs irrespective of whether the claimant files medical treatment, unless you, you are denying the claim outright for compensability purposes. What we typically do in this situation is we try to avoid the pitfalls of computation and actually suggest that employers pay at the minimum rate of $150 per week, and again, that's the minimum rate for all accidents after May of 2013, to avoid any penalties or unnecessary assessments from the Workers' Compensation Board. How much to pay also depends on what medicals you may have. So after that first 30 days of lost time where we're paying at the minimum rate because we can't computate an average weekly wage yet, or we don't have the medical reports in, a, in an accepted claim, we have uh, a computation system, right? So two-thirds of the average weekly wage will give you the temporary total disability rate. Now we can uh, subject this to certain maximums and minimums because uh, the minimum, as we said in the last slide, had to do with $150 per week. The maximum shows why average weekly wage is so important, because as of July 1st, 17 days ago, the maximum rate in New York has increased to $1,125.46. So what we typically try to do from a defense perspective is uh, talk about the average weekly wage defenses we have at our disposal because we can limit exposure in a number of ways once we are successful on that end. And in that regard, we want to use actual wages. The average weekly wage 
is supposed to be the average weekly wage that a claimant earns in the 52 weeks prior to the accident. We don't want to concede to any multiples that may apply. Uh, that might be the 200 multiple or the 260 multiple, which is most commonly used by claimants' attorneys and judges in the workers' compensation system. What we typically like to do is try to defend the application of those multiples by looking to case law and statutes where applicable. So for example, in the 200 multiple scenario, we have a claimant who may be a part-time worker. The claimant may work uh, less than a full-time schedule and may only work, let's say, 150 days out of the year in the 52 weeks prior to the accident. If that's the case, then we wouldn't want a judge to unilaterally increase the claimant's average weekly wage by using a 200 multiple with respect to the claimant's daily wage. To defend that type of claim, we present the Kellish case as a precedential value. We say that the claimant has to prove that he or she was available for full-time work if the employer had that work available. And this is typically something that's I wouldn't say it's easy, but it can be straightforward. Typically, a, a part-time worker is working for us because they are doing something else with their time. It may be going to school, it may be taking care of family members uh, as to why they can't work a full-time schedule. The 260 multiple applies to a five-day worker where uh, if that claimant employee works for a substantial portion of the year and uh, that amount of days is closer to that 260 range, then we can expect the claimant's attorney or the law judge to at least inquire about the application of a 260 multiple. But because we want to use the claimant's actual wages, we want to defend those claims on a, uh, a definition basis, right? How are we going to argue that the claimant has worked a substantial or an insubstantial portion of the year? Well, we generate that by looking, about, looking at how many weeks were worked throughout the year, and maybe within that subset, how many weeks were worked as a five-day worker. We also want to avoid conceding to the need for similar worker payrolls. A similar worker payroll is articulated in Section 14 of the Workers' Compensation Law when the employee does not work for the year prior to the accident. You might have someone who was hired in the middle of the calendar year and then has a work accident several months later without a year's worth of wages. Now, a similar worker may be beneficial to us, but we do, what we don't want to do is volunteer that information until a judge directs it or until we believe that it actually may be beneficial to the exposure in our claim. Concurrent employment is also a very big issue when we deal with these types of indemnity benefit claims because average weekly wage can be increased in ways that we may not predict. We may not know that claimants have second jobs at the time that they're working for us when they have an accident on our location or on our premises. But we always like to say you should use only eligible employments. Well, what's an eligible employment? An eligible employment is one that the claimant has worked for at the time of the accident and is covered by the New York Workers' Compensation Law, which thereby means that the employer is a New York entity. If we have a claimant who is working for a federal entity or a different state entity, whether that be public or private, it just means that the New York workers' compensation law would have to have jurisdiction over them. And that means that those types of employments should be disputed as concurrent average weekly wages. 
terms of art. So we might have doctors saying mild, moderate, and marked as a condition of partial disability. Well, we have formulas with respect to those uh, types of monikers. Now, they're different only because we want to show you the ways in which you can achieve that calculation. My favorite is actually the second one, where we have the average weekly wage multiplied by two-thirds and then multiplied by the particular disability percentage that you're using. It gives you the most exact figure possible, and it also allows you to see what you're calculating as you make the calculation. The first calculation is fine. It may not get you the most exact calculation because what you're doing is you're truncating the percentage at 66% of uh, what the average week, weekly wage should be towards a total rate as opposed to a two-thirds fraction. Or in the last uh, row, we have the use of the disability percentage as the numerator over a divisor, which is 150. It's an exact uh, replica of the second equation, but it just allows you to do it more quickly. But just remember, we only pay benefits for causally related lost time. The thing I usually like to ask myself is, is this claimant entitled to indemnity benefits before we determine rates and how we calculate those rates? If they're not entitled to indemnity benefits at all, then we don't need to go through the calculations. We make the argument that there's nothing entitled uh, in this claim. One of the examples uh, came out of the Smith case back in 2009. Uh, the employer was Con Ed. And in this case, the claimant had actually voluntarily retired for reasons unrelated to the accident. And once that determination was made, the claimant would have to produce labor market attachment evidence to prove that his entitlement to earnings was somehow related to the work accident or his work disability. In this case, the claimant did try to look for work after he voluntarily retired from Con Ed, but it sh his work search proved that he was looking for the same types of work from which he vol uh, voluntarily retired from. And at that point, the employer was able to show that the retirement or the lack of payment, payments made from wages was not due to disability. It was due to economic factors. Another important case was the Lawner case, and that employer was Euro Brokers and had a claimant who changed professions within the financial industry. Uh, several types of uh, employments were uh, involved in this case. The claimant initially worked uh, for uh, a company in Long Island that he just didn't like the commute. Uh, so he quit that job based on an economic factor, the commute. Uh, he then went into a business venture a partnership with other people in the financial industry, the venture failed. Another economic factor, not, not having to do with uh, the work accident. He had another job along the way where he actually didn't like his salary. And because of all these things, the employer was able to prove that any lost time or any periods where the claimant wasn't earning wages or was earning less than what he did prior to the accident was again, not due to the work disability, it was due to economic factors. So when do we end temporary disability? Well, the idea is we want a claimant to come back to work. And so most of the time when this happens, we don't need judicial permission to suspend benefits. The whole theory of an indemnity benefit is based on the fact that this is something paid to the claimant as wage replacement. So if we know that wage replacement isn't necessary because the claimant has returned to work, then we can unilaterally suspend indemnity benefits without uh, requesting a hearing. 
The other examples will require the presence of a hearing if we are on a judicial payment order, and that's one, if we determine that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. And the reason why this is juxtaposed against temporary disability is because maximum medical improvement is an assessment of permanency, not temporary disability, whereas temporary disability may be one's ability to work today Maximum medical improvement still may entitle a claimant to a permanency award, but it's an assessment of permanent loss of function or permanent loss of wagering capacity. And that's why we would want to make an application to suspend temporary disability if we have a finding or an opinion that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. Another option is refusing accommodated work. For example, a judge or the claimant's own doctor may concede that the claimant has the ability to work in a light duty or a sedentary capacity. And many times, this information can be used by the employer to facilitate a future indemnity defense. If we have a light duty position within our workforce to offer to the claimant that has adjudicated or conceded work restrictions, we may benefit by offering that uh, job to our claimant employee because the refusal of that job uh, would allow us to request a suspension of temporary disability benefits. The voluntary retirement was uh, just discussed in that Smith case, but the idea here is that once we have a retirement and we use it, we, we uh, stress that it has to be a voluntary requirement because voluntary has to do with whether or not the work accident caused this particular accident. So if, or caused the retirement rather. If the retirement was due to other reasons, uh, perhaps uh, you know there was a desire to move to a different state, a different country, therefore we cannot be part of the workforce here in New York, then the idea is that temporary disability, again, would be a remuneration of the claimant's ability to work if that work accident or work disability caused that inability to work. And if there is a voluntary requirement, we would be making that request to suspend benefits because our argument would be that the reason for not working is in fact the voluntary retirement. At all of these stages, we would raise lack of labor market attachment because the claimant would need to prove a labor market attachment to reinstate benefits. Now this goes hand in hand with partial disability findings and, and the like, but in any case where we are making an unrelated wage loss argument or requesting to suspend benefits, we essentially have evidence that the claimant can do something. So it's always important to keep labor market attachment as a continuing defense in our minds because the case value can change or the procedural history can change very quickly. And so here's our little tree uh, as we uh, try to figure out what we're going to do as far as process. Well, we may have a light duty release at the top of the screen where we talk about a claimant's doctor saying he can do a desk job or a judge believing you can do moderate work. And at that point, we're going to assess whether we as the employer can offer a light duty position or if we need to force the claimant to obtain work search proofs. The idea behind that is we know that the claimant is going to have to respond. The response from the claimant is either going to be an acceptance of that position or an acceptance of his obligation to look for work within uh, the law and the restrictions provided to him by his doctor or the judge, him or herself. If there is a non-response from the claimant or a lack of um, maybe an insubstantial response, what we would want to do is file pleadings to suspend benefits based on the claimant's 
inability to mitigate uh, the idea of looking for work and substantiating ongoing indemnity benefits. On the other hand, if the claimant says yes to the job offer or if the claimant says yes to uh, providing work search proof, our analysis continues. We want to determine if that's a timely, diligent, and persistent work search or we want to confirm with either the uh, vendor who's providing a third-party uh, employment for the claimant or it may be an entity privately in, indeed that can be subpoenaed to provide those records. We want to make sure that we're verifying everything that the claimant believes he or she is doing to make sure that they're undergoing their mitigation duty uh, to substantiate benefits. And here's a copy of the work search form. Uh, this would be if we can or concede that the claimant is an active or is not an active employee of our uh, workforce. The claimant would need to prove independent work search that is, that is timely, diligent, and persistent. And you can see from the form that there's a lot of information that the claimant will have to provide. The date that the application was filed, the name of the entity, the name of the individual who was uh, discussed or who, who was involved in the application, what the follow-up was from the uh, particular employer. All this information goes through uh, you know, a rigorous defense process where we try to discredit that this is a correct labor market attachment. Because remember, it has to be timely, diligent, and persistent in order for the claimant to receive ongoing and substantiated uh, indemnity benefits. If we don't have independent work search, a claimant can go through job placement services, whether they be uh, provided by the state or they provided by private companies. In the state services side, we may have state entities that work with the claimants to produce more gainfully employed individuals. Uh, it's, it's a process by which many try to uh, provide labor market attachment evidence because it may be more cheap and cost effective. Now on the employer side, private services may be used because they can facilitate more job offers. For instance, an employer may not have a light duty position available for a claimant because the employer may only have full duty positions available for everybody. And so using private services may allow us to provide vocational rehabilitation services to claimants. Again, it provides them a way to enter the workforce, increase their skills and their opportunities to earn gainful employment, but it also can sometimes provide light duty job offers consistent with um, medical or judicial work restrictions placed upon the claimant. And the whole idea of this is to provoke a response. We know that many claimants will get used to staying out of work. They'll get used to watching TV, sitting and sulking, having a beer in the middle of the day, and becoming more lazy and lazy, and not wanting to enter the workforce. We know that that's not good for all parties involved. The longer that a claimant stays out of work, the more likely it is that a claimant will not ever return to work. So our goal here is to provoke a response. We want to get the claimant to admit that there is something he or she can do. That provides a whole host of opportunities with respect to litigation of temporary degree of disability, labor market attachment, loss of wagering capacity, functional exertion, all these issues that we may have in litigation for the life of the claim, we can start early by provoking response from a claimant who may be predisposed to staying at home. And so that does it uh, for today's webinar on uh, temporary indemnity, labor market attachment, and defending those claims. Uh, I'm gonna go check the questions right now to see if there's anything we can answer live.
Okay. We have a question from April saying, if the claimant has been offered light duty, but then has refused, and then the treating medical doctor puts the claimant back out on total disability, what should we do? Uh, that's a great question because it happens a lot. And typically, treating doctors provide opinions relative to what a claimant is going to tell the doctor. The claimant may say to the doctor, oh, there's no light duty position. So, or, or oh, like uh, the, the light duty position doesn't fit my restrictions. And then somehow you have a treating doctor who finds a total disability without any real change in condition. The real move there has to be to litigate the claimant's degree of disability. Because once we have a concession from a treating doctor for a partial disability, it looks like this fact pattern, April, puts you on the right process. We are going to send a partial disability work offer where the claimant can work on a sedentary or a light duty position. And for whatever reason, the claimant gets spooked and goes back to his or her doctor to find a total disability. When the doctor's own opinions fluctuate to go from partial back to total, and there's nothing in the record like an invasive surgery or anything to cause a change in condition, what your directive should be in that claim is to go litigate degree of disability and voluntary withdrawal from the labor market. The claimant's decision to take a light duty offer to his doctor with the sole purpose of increasing that disability rating is a voluntary withdrawal from the labor market, but on the on the back end, you still want to litigate degree of disability and have a judge order that a claimant is at a partial disability, not just a doctor who is subject to the whims of different reports being filed day after day. Okay, maybe, yes, a question from Eric. How will the potential law changes awaiting Governor Hochul's signature affect this? That's a great question. I got that question in the earlier webinar uh, this morning. Um, the idea that there's a bill before the governor waiting for signature uh, can certainly be an issue for us as employers and carriers. Uh, one of the bills has uh, a redefinition or a new definition of temporary total disability as being unable to do a pre-accident position. That, of course, now has major waves for labor market attachment and also indemnity exposure in general. Right now, we're on the same status quo. We are litigating temporary total disability, degree of disability, and labor market attachment in the same way, but we're certainly going to be keeping an eye out for that development in the law. I'm pretty sure you're going to see some of our faces in a special webinar should that signature be placed. As far as what we're doing as a firm collectively, we're actually gathering signatures of plenty of employers and carriers who know that this is a rather unfair update to the New York workers' compensation law, and if you are one of those employers and carriers that would like to add your company as a signatory, to our letter to the governor, uh, we'd be happy to add you. We are writing on behalf of many of our clients to explain why this law does not make sense and it will eradicate a lot of the, the strategies that we have in place. But you can be sure that once that um, change goes into effect, we'll be providing a more analyzed update of how we can move forward. Okay, I think those were the questions for today. I, I do want to thank Thank everybody for coming to this webinar. Uh, my name is Christian Cizan. Again, I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm. I'm the practice director of all self-insured clients and large deductible risk. And I'm, I'm happy that you guys had a uh, chance to enjoy this webinar today. So uh, I'll sign off and remind you to defend from day one.